0: Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. Good morning, Lambert Park Church, and a warm welcome to all who are participating online as well. Thank you, Aaron, for praying for me. As he said, my name is Siobhan Barry. (laughs) And I am not a seasoned preacher, though I grew up with one, sometimes two preachers in my family, and my parents pastor a church on the island. I was 13 years old at their commissioning service, and I remember when a church leader placed her hands on their backs and prayed, this call will be hard on your family. What a negative prayer, I thought. Why would she say that? No, it won't be hard. I'm sure there was more to the prayer than that simple phrase, but over two decades later, these words are a gift to me. Why? Because they name the truth, and they invite me to name it too. It has been hard. Seven years ago, I sat with my husband and two sons in this section of Lambrook Park Church. I was pregnant with my third son, who is now almost six. I was here because it seemed like what I should do, what we should do, and those shoulds got me through the door, but I didn't know how to participate beyond sitting in a chair on Sunday. I was confused and angry. I doubted God played any role in my life. I didn't want to open my Bible. I didn't want to pray. And I certainly didn't think I would ever preach. But God is making all things new. Yes, right here and now. Today, by the grace of God, I'm not stuck in my chair. My faith has moved, but it still has a long way to go. Just ask my family, or don't, about their new idea to start a swear jar. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so thank you for your prayers and your grace as I lead us through Psalm 129 today. We are in the middle of a sermon series entitled Steadfast Psalms a journey through the Psalms of Ascent, which are Psalms 120 to 134. And we've called the song Steadfast because these ancient songs are as much for us today as they were for the Jewish pilgrims who originally sang them while traveling to Jerusalem to worship for their three major festivals. Eugene Peterson says in his book, a long obedience in the same direction Everyone, everyone who travels the road of faith requires assistance from time to time. And the Psalms are a helpful guide through life's inevitable trouble. Jesus sang these songs too. As Luke 2.41 says, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover according to the custom. As a child, he walked these ancient paths with his mother and father. As an adult, he walked them with his disciples and I bet sometimes his mom too. In in addition, Jesus likely sang the songs on his final trek to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. All the while knowing he would soon ascend a very different hill than Jerusalem's, Golgotha, the hill where he would be crucified. Before we open our Bibles to Psalm 129, let's pray. Living God, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you that you are with us here. Make our hearts ready for your word this morning, Open our ears to hear your voice and wash away the mud on our eyes, any lingering mud in my sermon. And let us see your truth with clarity. Teach us to participate in your good work, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. Amen. Okay, turn with me, if you have your Bibles, here to Psalm 129. I will we'll read the whole thing together. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth... Let Israel say they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The Old Testament was the only Bible that Jesus had. Fleming Rutledge, an Episcopal priest and American theologian, who I will reference a few times this morning, says, not only so, but the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms were known to Jesus Paul and the earliest Christians by heart in a fashion that to." In a fashion that we today can scarcely imagine. There are many things that we do not know about Jesus, but of this we can be sure. His mind and heart were shaped by intimate, continuous interaction with scripture. But not Psalm 129, right? Jesus prayed from the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. Surely he wouldn't sing, from the pilgrim's road, may they be like grass on the roof which withers before it can grow. I can imagine Jesus saying, may the Lord bless you from Zion all the days of your life. A blessing from last week, Psalm 128. But I can't imagine him praying, may those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. It's quite the shift in tone. Psalm 129 has a very similar structure to Psalm 124, a previous Psalm of Ascent, You may recall it from Carly's sermon five weeks ago, and it begins like this If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side. Carly related these words to a worship filled cheer. Is Psalm 129 the same, but in the negative, where the prayer now calls for the withering of the enemy? Would Jesus participate in this seemingly us versus them chant? We don't know for sure. Maybe he grew quiet when the songs started, exchanging knowing glances with his mother and discreetly not adding his own harmony during the disciples' a cappella rendition. Or maybe he joined in without hesitation, understanding the words at a level we don't yet see on first reading. I imagine he prayed it much like he prayed in Gethsemane Yet not my will, but yours be done. The book of Psalms is unique because they are not only words from God to people, but also words spoken from people to God, from people about God. According to Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, the Psalms are not primarily for teaching doctrine or moral behavior, but for helping us to express ourselves to God and to consider his ways. Eugene Peterson was driven to translate the Psalms because he wanted people to start praying them again, not just admiring them from a distance. The hope was that they would learn to pray everything they experienced and felt and thought as they followed Jesus, not just what they thought was proper to pray in church, So how is the prayer to pray Psalm 129? Let's look closer. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Psalm 129 is not the same as 124 despite its similar structure. The opening line is darker, emphasizing Israel's long oppression by a ruthless enemy. The enemy is not named, but the word youth would have reminded the Jewish pilgrims traveling with Jesus of their people's slavery in Egypt, specifically Hosea's words. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son, Hosea 11.1. Israel did not deserve Egypt's wrath, but they would live under it for 400 years. As the song progresses, the naming of this oppression intensifies through an agricultural metaphor. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. Long. The enemy is excessively harsh. Their cruelty leaves no part of the field untouched. Their furrows are long. And furrows are not the creases in the enemy's forehead as he furrows his brow. A furrow is a long, deep, narrow groove carved into once hard soil by a plow. But in this case, these furrows are being carved into a human back. This imagery is not easy to read or to pray. To some, it may seem like hyperbole, an over-exaggeration for effect, but to the Jewish pilgrims who knew their history, it named a pointed reality. And if we're honest, it does for us too. Because even if we do not experience great oppression ourselves, we see it everywhere. To pray these lines is to cry out with a groaning world where oppressors seek to harvest power and success from the backs of the vulnerable, marginalized and voiceless. Our world groans under the weight of gross injustices, war, genocide, human trafficking, child labor, religious persecution, Racism, environmental crimes, poverty, and unfortunately, so much more. Notice the phrase, let Israel say. Israel is encouraged to remember what it has survived. Let the prayer say the truth about their long suffering and the long suffering of the vulnerable and weak in our world. This is not a forgive and forget prayer but psalm 129 also helps a prayer to consider god's ways to pray god's character back to god there are two vital turns in tone within the psalm and they begin with the word but and we do not want to miss them this morning but they have not gained the victory over me. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. God is the preserver of his people. Despite all they have endured, they are not defeated. And then comes the central declaration of God's character in Psalm 129. Yahweh is Righteous. Righteous is a word we do not often use because it feels stuffy, but it is rich in biblical meaning. The Greek word for God's righteousness is dikaiosune. Hopefully, I pronounced that right, which is also translated as justice. So the prayer is saying, above all, the Lord is just and and he has acted on my behalf. Have you experienced a time when, God, when you saw God fighting for you? Or for another, acting in the middle of the story, cutting cords, setting people free, taking control away from the oppressor? Have you experienced a time when God revealed His reign and rule over your life, where you were sure God's will was being done on earth as it is in heaven? I have. And yet I also remember when I would have answered these questions with an assertive no. All I see are long furrows. And the truth is, no matter how far along in our faith journey we are, or how faithfully we follow, we are not guaranteed a pain-free life. But God promises he is faithful to preserve us and to act for our benefit. I'm just going to grab a drink. So far, there's nothing too controversial here that we can't pray. But it gets a little muddier in the following section. Let's read it again. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. To the ancient Israelites, where famine meant a real threat of death, these words Are severe. They outline the wicked person's path to self-destruction. All who hate Zion will be turned back in shame. The sun will scorch the grass on the roof. There will be no harvest for the wicked, and those who pass by will not bless them, but keep walking. This is a challenging prayer to pray, And yet it too, like the opening, expresses an honest and deep cry from the gut of the prayer and helps us to consider God's character. Fleming Rutledge names a convicting truth about our culture's reaction to a God who is just. If the average church-going American is asked to describe God, he or she will almost certainly call God loving. God is also commonly described as compassionate, merciful, welcoming, accepting, and inclusive. Very few will volunteer that God is just. Yet the revelation of God as just or righteous forms such a huge part of the Old Testament prophetic literature that ancient Israel would have counted it a keystone of the faith. Look up the word withering or grass in a biblical concordance and you'll find passages all over the Old and New Testament that mirror the language of Psalm 129. You're welcome. (laughs) Have fun editing your sermon now that you've gone down that delightful side trail. But uh, to whet your appetite, I'll name a few. Jonah's withering plant. The fig tree Jesus curses, the parable of the sower and the weeds. Uh, but for the purposes of time, we will just peek at a couple examples in the prophetic literature. Isaiah 47 to 8 says, All people are like grass, the grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. Psalm one, an introduction to the Psalms as a whole, says this about the wicked: they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Consider the strong language of Jeremiah seventeen five to six. It begins by saying, "This is what the Lord says: cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord." That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. One basic ingredient in the Old Testament idea of righteousness and justice is relationship. Humanity's relationship with God and our relationship with each other. To turn away from Yahweh is to choose to dwell in a parched place. It is to turn from relationship, from the one who preserves us, and it is to walk a lonely way. Let's continue reading Jeremiah 17, because just like in Psalm 129, the tone shifts at the word, but... But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit." To trust Yahweh is to be planted by the water, rooted beside the stream. It is to have confidence that the real experiences of heat and drought cannot defeat us if God is on our side. And God is. Archbishop and social activist Desmond Tutu says, God's justice is not retributive. It is not a punishment, but it is restorative. It is natural that many do not understand this because God's love resisted is felt as wrath. And the truth of this statement is so evident in Psalm 129. For a farmer to sow seed on the roof... And then attempt to harvest it is foolishness. No wonder the grass is thirsty. It has no access to rich, deep soil. No access to water other than rain in a desert climate. No wonder the reaper and the gatherer are left empty-handed. The farmer has chosen their own way and resisted the stream, the source of life. Even if we agree that this is a prayer expressing real pain to a just God, we still don't want to pray it. Why? Because it feels dishonest. The Psalms contrast the wicked and the righteous often, and as hard as it is to admit, we don't always know which side we fall on. Who is righteous? How is a person planted and what if I, what if I am the foolish farmer? If you think the line between the wicked and the righteous was more obvious to the Jewish pilgrims than to us, it wasn't. They asked the same questions we do. In fact, they knew they were the foolish farmer. The passage, the passage in Jeremiah 17 was not written for an outside audience but to convict the Israelites who despite their oppression in Egypt would become oppressors themselves. As Amos 510 to 12 names, there are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. The Jewish pilgrims knew that their exile in Babylon was a result of the consequences of their own sins. That they were denied the harvest that they had tried to plunder from the vulnerable, that they had forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And Israel understood that a song alone couldn't fix it. Not even 15 songs of ascent, not a well attended worship service in Jerusalem, not a pilgrimage. Righteous action was required. As Amos 5 says, away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Israel knew they were completely reliant on the grace and mercy of God. In Psalm 129, the Lord is the only one named righteous. There is no specific enemy named, not even Egypt directly. The enemy is all, all who hate Zion. And Zion is a literal place, Jerusalem, but also a spiritual one. It is a place where the king reigns and from his throne flows the river of the water of life as clear as crystal. That's in Revelations 22, 1. The Hebrew word for hate does mean to despise, but it can also mean to reject. So these words are saying, may those who reject God's justice see the impact of their actions, see the empty harvest, see the lonely road. Why do we turn from the one who gives us life? Shame is a word we don't like and often for very good reason. But as Scott, one of the pastors at Lambrick, said in his sermon on Psalm 120, the opening psalm of this series, sometimes woe is a gospel word. It starts a needed change. In the same way, shame can help us see. To see that something is terribly wrong in our world and needs to be set right, but also To see that God wants to bless us, not in a hashtag blessed way, but in a life sustaining way. We all, we all thirst for the Lord's blessing, for a right relationship with God and with each other. Psalm 129 is written as a prayer not a curse or a chant shouted from a distance at the pilgrim's enemy. It repeats the word may, and we can sing or pray it from wherever we are. It overflows with honesty. The prayer calls out to God for both justice and mercy with simultaneous outrage and repentance. The prayer lays down their right to take vengeance into their own hands and gives it to their righteous God, asking him to come and to restore in his mercy all that is still entangled in cords, including parts of themselves. The prayer can pray the psalm because they are asking for God's will, God's reign to be seen on earth as it is in heaven For For all. Whenever Jesus' mother Mary went to Jerusalem on pilgrimage with Jesus, I bet she knew how to sing Psalm 129. The song she sings while pregnant with Jesus, known as the Magnificat, gives us a good clue. But I'll just quote the end He has filled the hungry with good things. But sent the rich away empty, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. When I began this sermon, I said, I imagine Jesus prayed Psalm 129, much like he prayed in Gethsemane before his arrest. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point Death. Like Psalm 129, Jesus does not just pray it once, but he repeats it multiple times to his Father. As he prays, he asks, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. He asks for another way, and every time he adds, yet not as I will, but as you will. When he returns to his disciples, who were supposed to be praying against temptation, but were instead asleep. Jesus names the truth to them The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And it is for this reason that we need to pray. I introduce myself with a hard prayer I remember from my youth. This call will be hard. And my intention is not to suggest we all start cursing each other because hard prayers will later heal us. Definitely not. That would be terrible. But maybe it's okay to name the truth that this faith journey isn't always easy. That we need each other's help, especially when our own way fails us. When I sat in church, unable to participate, it was the hard prayers in the Bible that helped me stay. They invited me to grieve and to call on God for his justice, and in his mercy, he answered. Before we end, I want to acknowledge something that I haven't yet. When I first read Psalm 129, all I could think about was forgiveness. What about forgiveness? What about the wild stories of people who choose to forgive after horrific atrocities? Should I forgive those who have harmed me and the ones I love in the same immediate way? Should I repent for not wanting to, for not knowing how? And this is a sermon for another time. But I want you to notice that Psalm 129 doesn't address forgiveness. It is a prayer for someone in the middle of the trouble. And we can pray it as it is. Jesus did not say, I forgive them in Gethsemane. He felt the immense weight of our impasse, our cycles of oppression, and he was overwhelmed with sorrow, praying a prayer that made his sweat fall like drops of blood to the ground. But despite this intensity, he doesn't stay in Gethsemane. As he sees his betrayer coming, he says, rise, let us go. His next ascent will end up Golgotha on a cross. And if we think it was easy for him to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We miss the fact that Jesus is praying those words. Under great duress, he chooses to pray for us. And in so doing, declares the righteous will of Yahweh. Psalm 129 is one prayer, and one prayer doesn't tell the whole story. It is not the only prayer we will pray, but it is a part we are invited to name honestly before God. And maybe praying it will help us move, rise, and persevere up the next ascent. If followers of Jesus choose to pray Psalm 129 today, they have the benefit of knowing the trajectory of scripture, of knowing that their thirst is satisfied in Jesus, the living water, the source of life, the righteous one. As Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And that promise is for us too. God's kingdom is for all. All who are thirsty are welcome to turn and come to the one who wraps justice in mercy. If you were to distill Psalm 129 into four words for the follower of Jesus today, it would be, come, Lord Jesus, come. And that prayer covers everything from outrage to repentance to a deep longing for all things to be made new. Come, Lord Jesus, come. May your righteous will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we sing this final song, I invite you to bring all of yourself with honesty, not just the parts that feel proper for church. It is an act of holy submission to Yahweh, who is the good gardener, who plants us beside the water, sustains us through trouble, and sends mercy's rain. Even when we choose our own way. Come Lord Jesus, come.